Hello, and welcome to the Learning to Slay the Beast podcast, a resilience podcast where we talk about all the challenging things that we're working to overcome, like anxiety, health, and relationship issues. My name is Sarah. Welcome to the Learning to Slay the Beast podcast. I'm Sarah. This week, we're going to be speaking with DJ Nicholson, who is the Director of Inclusiveology. So we'll get more into that. Just wanted to check in. We are at mid-January. It is super cold here in Canada, and we are expecting some crazy snow as well this week, which... I'm not super looking forward to. Honestly, I'm not a winter person. I know some people love it, but it's just, it's not really my thing. So I'm a little bit bummed with that. We are hoping that our kids are heading back to school this week in person and live after a few weeks of remote. So that is feeling really positive um, to me. And I'm hoping everything goes really well for anybody who's going through a similar transition. So this week, we're going to be talking a lot about how to best work with neurodiverse students and make them thrive, make a community at school and in education that they can thrive in. And so we are having DJ Nicholson on the podcast. After 26 years in public education, DJ retired early to progress her life's mission and passion project to include every child in learning. So in addition to working in the classroom with children with a wide range of cognitive differences, she also served as an instruction coach and a consultant for teachers and students with a variety of needs and supports. So at her new role in inclusivology, she focuses on growing inclusive school communities through professional development and coaching. Today, we're going to chat with her about some of the issues that DJ is really seeing in the schools right now, how education can be more inclusive, and some of the tools that she recommends and that inclusivology provides in order to help this come true. So I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. We get into some of the really nitty gritty details of tools. I learned a lot about the education system and a lot about the kind of things that you can be asking for if your child is in need of some of these tools. And I think it's really helpful for any parent that um, has a child that does have some of these needs that you can dig in a little bit more and understand about how the education world really works and what you should be seeking. So please enjoy this conversation with DJ Nicholson. Have you read my novel, Pendulum by S.E. German yet? If not, what are you waiting for? And if you have, I would love to hear from you. If you don't know about Pendulum, it's a heartwarming story about a young boy who starts to experience neuropsychiatric symptoms after an infection. We follow the boy as he goes through many regular, real middle grade issues like moving, having a crush, playing sports, also while experiencing neuropsychiatric symptoms like anxiety, OCD, tics, panic attacks, and more. If you're interested in checking out Pendulum by S.E. German, it is available through Amazon Worldwide where you can even see a preview of the book 
Or you can listen to chapter one, which is on episode 64 of the Learning to Slay the Beast podcast. I hope you enjoy the novel and thanks for your support. So welcome DJ Nicholson to the podcast. I'm happy to connect with you today. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I'm happy to be here. Perfect. So why don't we start with you providing a bit about your background and then how you came to be the director of Inclusivology? Sure. So I spent 20 years working in a variety of different settings um, with varying abilities from specific learning disabilities to kids with significant cognitive disabilities and behavior disorders. And then after those 20 years, I've spent the past six years working in the special education department of one of the districts down here in Florida, United States. And in that role, I did a lot of side-by-side coaching. I did professional development. I did training um, mostly at the elementary level. And then in addition to that, I've been contracting with a grant-funded project through the Florida Department of Education. And in that role, I supported students with significant cognitive disabilities with curriculum resources and supporting teachers in and helping how to implement um, some alternative teaching standards. And so how I became the director of inclusivology is there were definitely a lot of gaps when I took a look at, you know, how we're training teachers, how we're providing professional development and coaching. And so I retired early to um, create inclusivology because I think it was really important and it's time to change the way that professional development is provided to school communities because it's time to, you know, really take a look at how we're providing really good quality education to every single child. That makes absolute sense. So it sounds like you spent, you said, I think previously about 26 years working in the Mm -hmm. classroom. So why don't you tell us about some of those issues that you noticed in terms of inclusion in schools? You know, I think a lot of what um, what the biggest issue to me is just a lack of knowledge on what we mean as educators when we say the word inclusion. And I think that there's a big miscommunication or no communication at all on what it actually is. And so I think the lack of knowledge need, leads to some refusal to believe that that's something that's possible mm-hmm. within a school community. And I think that some of that creates a sense of fear because it's an unknown because we've just done things the same way for so long that to start having conversations about inclusion and throwing that word around without the background knowledge leads to, um, leads to some issues (laughs) for sure. Mm -hmm. And so you know, with that, maybe you want to dive into what you see inclusion to be. So one of the, one of the other issues too, I think when we want, when we look at what we want inclusion to be is we have to make sure, you know, that, that teachers know how to adapt instruction. They know how to be flexible in instruction and what that is going to look like from grade level to grade level. I feel like, you know, in an, in our education world now, um, you know, we're, a lot of us are just stuck in, well, this is the way that we've always done things. This is the way it has to be done. And we see kind of the same teaching style, the same teaching methods used throughout um 
a grade level across teachers because we're so focused on on these formal tests that students have to take. And so it stops being about the child and it starts being more about achievement that's based on test scores rather than really reflecting back on, well, how is how are the kids in my classroom really going to make progress? Right. So, you know, and it's it's getting away from, you know, the rigidity with expecting that every single child is going to learn the same content the same way at the same time. And we've kind of pigeonholed, you know, every child into, well, if you're eight years old and in the third grade, this is what you should know at this point. And, and we know, you know, that that's not the case for all, for all children. Yeah, absolutely. And then so realistically, I mean, a teacher would have children that are learning at a variety of different levels in their class. How, how do they plan for that, I guess? Well, and I think that that's part of the problem that, you know, when we talk about inclusion and then we have teachers that have, you know, kiddos in their classroom that are either learning differently or they have, you know, an individual education plan and they have accommodations I think a lot of times it goes back to that lack of knowledge that teachers aren't really even quite sure what to do. Mm-hmm. So they oftentimes don't do anything. But I think if they have, you know, a healthy toolbox, they have another person to go to within their building that is an expert, then it might make it easier to do some planning that's effective and meets the needs of everyone. Right. And that individual class, because year over year, you're going to have a totally different mix. Right. And I feel like, you know, the, I know for me, my toolbox when I stopped teaching in the classroom looked very different than it did when I first started teaching. And so I feel like, you know, it's a, it really is up to teachers. And I know that it's so hard with there's so many things that go into teaching now versus when I started teaching back in, you know, 1995. The expectation is very different. But I think it's important for teachers to, you know, collaborate with each other, talk to the other people in your building that have been around for a while and have these huge toolboxes and have different strategies that they can share to 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 work with with kids that learn differently and have that kind of neuro atyp- atypicality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess at a high level, then, what do you think can be done in the education system to really provide opportunities for that more inclusive environment? So I think it's really important that, you know, at a higher level, what I've seen is, you know, initiatives that come out, the next grand idea of something that you know, either a state wants to try or a district wants to, wants to try. And I think when it comes to inclusive environments, I like to use the phrase inclusive community because it really, it really does affect and support every person in that community. And that, that also includes parents. So if we're looking at you know, inclusive environments and inclusive communities, you know, we have to prioritize training for that. And we have to look at inclusion as not just putting a child in a classroom with typical peers or putting children in a classroom. We have to know, you know, what what is inclusion really? And how do we take a look at all the components? 
So we have to look at, you know, what does spacing look like in the classroom? What, how do we design a classroom from year to year that is going to best suit the children that we have in our classroom at the time? How are we going to plan for possibly some collaborative teaching, um, you know, with a special education colleague? So then you have, you know, the, the gen ed component and the special educator in the classroom together to, you know, to collaborate and, and kind of play off of, of each other and have those two, you know, main bodies of knowledge in the classroom together. Um, I think it's really important that we look at the full picture of inclusion and not just pick inclusive scheduling and look at that, not just look at visual supports. I think that there's, you know, in, in inclusiveology, you know, to me, there's, there's nine major components of inclusion. And I think, you know, to really do inclusion the right way, we can't just continue to say that, that we are inclusive without knowing how to integrate all of the parts in, how to have buy-in from all of your staff. How do you do disability awareness training for students? I mean, there's just so much of a lack of knowledge. And then how do we incorporate parents? I think that that's a, that's a huge part of it. So really that does have to, all of that has to come from a higher level. I have loads of teachers that I've worked with in the past that, you know, they're very, very for inclusive environments, but it can't just be a teacher here and there. It really does have to come from like the quote unquote top down. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that too, there has to be funding. And there has to be monies that get prioritized. So schools have, you know, a staffing model that supports flexibility, that supports, you know, being able to move certain members of that school community around to support the kids that need that need a little bit more support or need some additional strategies. Um, and the other piece of that, too, is we have to know how to train staff. So even the, even in the event that there's not additional money, that we can maximize the staff that they do have in order to create inclusive scheduling that is going to help those, those members of the staff there, even if they're short-staffed, to be able to serve more kiddos in an inclusive setting. Um, I've seen that a lot in the schools that I've worked with over the last six years and trying to, to coach and support with this inclusive scheduling is really hard when you don't have buy-in from the top down and when you have a school that kind of has that limited, um, what they see as limited staffing and, and kind of almost like a, a true inability to be, to be more flexible. Mm -hmm. And so maybe um, what are you meaning when you say inclusive scheduling? Most schools have a, a master schedule. And so everyone knows all the teachers across the campus. They know when their their art time is and their music time. And there's a spot in the schedule set aside for reading and math. And so it's a it's a huge chart, which basically charts out every different possible part of the school day and makes teachers accountable for all the different pieces of their day. But in an inclusive schedule, you're taking into consideration those children that need the highest amount of support first. 
And so we would consider those to be the big rocks. And so we're being strategic with where we place those students to know that, okay, so in addition to having their traditional, you know, general education teacher, that we might have um, a special education teacher that goes in and supports alongside that teacher for part of the day. We might be able to allocate a paraprofessional to go in and be in that classroom to continue to support with some of these more unique needs. And so an inclusive schedule takes those kiddos that needs the most support, we schedule them first, and then everybody else kind of gets filled in around that. Because when you look at, you know, the the makeup of a school, every child, every child would benefit from additional support in the classroom. So that's, that's a way to look at that. But then if we flip that script and schedule those kiddos that need the most support last, they might wind up in classrooms where there's not enough support. Right. So by scheduling them first, it really benefits everyone. Okay, that's great. That's a good clarification. And then the other thing I'd love you to dive into a little bit more is the nine major components of inclusion that you mentioned. What what kind of things does that include? So the nine major components, um, and I'll just list them off, are goal setting and um, prioritizing learning, assistive technology, assessments, environment, space, routine, generalized instruction, specially designed instruction, and scheduling. Okay, that's helpful. So it takes all of those things kind of working together. It, it does. And so, you know, my experience has been, you know, and, and as, a, as a trainer, you know, I've trained on each of these different areas, but it, and it's great. But it doesn't, when you provide professional development that's standalone and there's not any planned follow-up, we, we kind of miss the mark there. Um, you know, teacher schedules are so tight right now that the thought of, you know, oh, great, more training, <laughs> more, mm-hmm. more something else to put on my plate, that if we're going to do training and we're going to look at, you know, creating a truly meaningful, inclusive environment and community, it has to be relevant. And so it kind of takes me back to what I said initially about, you know, in a lot of situations, especially with, you know, with general education teachers, there's just a lack of knowledge. And I don't think it's, it's a, it's an unwillingness. I think they're, they just don't know and that's okay. So um, the way our programming works is we do a lot of learning support pre-teaching, which is just good work for when we're working with kids with disabilities anyways. But we do that in training as well. So we provide a packet um, of information to kind of get everyone up to speed on the same page with vocabulary we're going to talk about. We're going to have some reflections on what things look like in your classroom, possible questions that you want to ask when we're in a live session. And then we're always going to have those teachers that don't necessarily need that pre-learning and and learning support ahead of time, but it's there if they need it. And then we do, you know, live sessions and then there's planned follow-up and planned coaching. So it's relevant to a particular school site or, or a classroom. 
There has to be, to me, there just has to be fluidity in how we're training. Okay. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And, and that support. Um, so what kind of advice would you have for say a teacher that's, um, maybe not getting this training provided, but is trying to work to structure the curriculum and then even their day schedule in a way that can accommodate various learners? Sarah, that's a great question. And I think one of the easiest and free things to do is to take advantage of the people in your building. Take advantage of your special education teachers. And if you're not sure those are going to be the people in your building that are going to be able to problem solve with you, strategize, come up with ideas. And if you need to take it a step further, the majority of school districts have some district level people that can, that can come in and, and support you and they're going to be your greatest resource. Um, the other thing that I try to impart to teachers is and it, it can be hard when, you know, when there's all these expectations, you know, from state level testing and um, those more formal assessments that come out for kids to do. So as we move away from thinking about, you know, achievement as being defined by state testing or those more formal tests, just try to start thinking flexibly. Mm-hmm. So if if I can, you know, get teachers to think, okay, this, what, how you're teaching right now isn't working for this child. So let's think about, you know, what is a, what is a way, what is something that you could do to help this child work in a way that's meaningful for him? Take a look at, you know, what is your learning outcome? What do you want students to be able to be able to do at the end and almost work backwards? You know, if, if you want a child to know, you know, just, as an example for science, you want them to know um, in detail, you know, the inner and outer planets of the solar system. What do you want them to know? And then be flexible in how they can show that to you. Um, not everybody has to take a test or a quiz. Not everyone has to do, you know, a slide deck or a PowerPoint presentation, but there can be some flexibility in how they're explaining to you. Um, what they know. And then, you know, I, and I say this too, ask, ask kids what they need. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think, you know, we, we get so caught up in, well, I'm the adult and, and I'm the one that knows the best. But sometimes if we just ask, ask kids, like, what do you, what do you need right now? If you've got a kid that's sitting and is wiggly and squirmy in his chair, you know, just to simply say to him, what do you need right now? Do you need to change your seat? Do you need to stand up? Do you need to sit on the floor um, just to get out of that? It's almost like a rut that we as teachers kind of get into, but, but be flexible, be open to, you know, asking kids what they need and don't be afraid to reach out to other um, people in your building that might have a different skill set than what you have. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, even as parents, sometimes we do that where you have to kind of say to the child, what what do you need right now? Like, what's what's going on? So I could totally see that. But I think it's really important because it gives it gives kids that sense of empowerment mm-hmm. and it gives them value when we as adults say, listen, little dude, you're having a really hard time right now. What help help me help you. And it, you know, it, it validates, I think, um, 
those kiddos that might have trouble focusing. It validates, you know, the kids that, that maybe aren't reading on grade level yet, but they need um, an audio support um, in accessing content but ask them what they need. And I think that it's great that, you know, as, as parents, you know, we, we can do that too. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I like when you mentioned learning outcomes, one of the things that I know in our IEP process in, I'm in Canada um, and in Ontario is that, you know, parents get a form home and it says, you know, what, what are you looking for for your child this year? And it just kind of gets you thinking a little bit differently, like what would be a win for my child, you know, to really learn or master by the end of the year. And um, I think that's really important that it's, it's not going to be the same for all of them. They're not all starting at the same level. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think we, we really have to hit home that, you know, like I said, initially, all eight year olds do not, do not function the same way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we do, we do kids such a disservice to assume um, that because you're in the third grade, you are going to be doing the following things and everyone will be doing the following things by the time they get to the end of third grade. And we really set kids up for failure when we, when we expect that. And I know that we have to have standards for instruction, but there's also some flexibility that's allowed in there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, so you mentioned focus as, as one of your examples. So I wondered what types of either tips or tools, you know, are you aware of that can be used in the classroom to help improve focus for really all learners? So one of my favorite things to talk about um, is assistive technology. And I think that this is one of those areas where there's, um, you know, just an overall lack of knowledge because we don't talk about it enough. But assistive technology is great for kids that um, that don't necessarily have the focus that they need just yet. And oftentimes we see that lack of focus because they're either they're either losing their attention span or they're struggling with something or they're not understanding something and it's becoming um, frustrating for them. So to use assistive technology, that is something as simple as a visual support instead of listening to the teacher talk that they have something that they can actually look at that helps them make sense of what they're hearing. Um, and then pictures to help them better engage in learning in general. And then also taking it a step further to using text to speech as a support and speech to text. Um, text to speech, speech to text are, are both available on all computers. It's part of their, you know, computers nowadays, it's part of their accessibility programs and especially on Microsoft Word, it's built into there. It's also built into um, many of the learning management systems that schools are using, um, and then all the way up through the more uh, more supportive form of assistive technology, technology which is using um, devices for communication. So assistive technology really runs the gamut, but that can be um, very helpful when you're taking, you know, learning styles into into account because not everyone is auditory. Um, the other thing to improve focus is to have flexible seating. And I use the example of, you know, the blue plastic chair. 
you know, not everyone is comfortable sitting in a blue plastic chair. And so when kids start to lose their focus or their, or your, your, the chair isn't built to their right size and their, their feet are kind of dangling off the, they're not touching the floor, their legs are dangling and things like that. Um, you know, we have to consider something else and, and that's okay because we want, we want kids to be comfortable in their learning environment. Um, so we can consider using gymnastic balls to bounce up and down on. Um, there's wiggle pads and mushroom chairs, or even simply giving children an option to stand up or have an alternate spot to sit in the classroom. Um, when I was in the classroom, my, my kiddos always had two different places to sit or they could stand and it was always their option. And sometimes I think in doing that, again, it goes back to, you know, they are able to better self-regulate. They're able to feel like they have more control and more independence in, in you know, where their place is in the classroom. And, you know, teachers have said, you know, I would never put a gymnastic ball in my classroom. But I had I worked with a teacher last year who she had gymnastic balls for every student. And it was a class of 23 and so her kids either had a chance to sit in a in a plastic chair or on a gymnastic ball. And it was amazing to me how much control they had over themselves on the ball itself. So there were some kids that, you know, kind of rocked back and forth. Some kids bounced up and down, but not the whole time. It was not distracting and it was actually a beautiful thing. But she gave them that, you know, that flexibility to choose what they wanted And then I think the other thing to improve focus is, you know, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, is to just have some flexibility um, and give them different opportunities in how they want to respond. So whether they're orally responding or it's a written response or they're creating slide decks, you can have kids working independently. You can have them work in a small group. There's so many different ways that you can be flexible and give them a, a more of like a deeper opportunity for them to um, connect with what they're learning. And I think the, you know, the more as teachers, the more we get to know the kiddos in our room, the more fluid and the more flexible that can become. Yeah, those are great ideas. I love the flexible seating. I know I have heard of that in some of the classrooms where even the chairs can kind of spin or they're like a little bit off. And so the child can move around a little bit more. Um, And and I like the idea that they have multiple places that they could be. I think that's really interesting that, you know, you could stand up, you could um, sit in a different seat. I mean, it's, it's so hard. And I know I've had this conversation with my kids, like, because you look at, what offices do and what it's like in the workplace. Like if I want to stand up, I just stand up. Right. And it's, right. <laughs> it's hard to then explain to your child, like, well, yeah, but you're not allowed to do that. It's like, well, okay, but there's really no reason. And obviously, you know, they get uncomfortable and, and things like that. So I think that makes a lot of sense and that um, some of those things could be really, really beneficial for the kids in the classroom for sure. Well, and, you know, just what you just said about, you know, that they're not, they're not allowed to, to do that and how there's such a difference between, you know, what we expect from children at school versus what we see out in the workplace. But can you imagine if children had a chance to choose their own spot? Obviously, there are parameters around 
where you can sit. You can't sit on the desk or on the radiator or things yeah. like that. But Save can me. you imagine? Right. But can you imagine if we gave children a, an opportunity to, you know, when they start getting wiggly, that they can go sit someplace else rather than it becoming a behavioral issue? Because yeah. we see that all the time. It becomes a behavior issue and it doesn't have to be. I feel like when you, when you know your, when you know your students and you have tools and, and alternate ways to look at things, it's much more effective. And, and like I said, it gives kids ownership. It leaves them feeling empowered and then it's hopefully it'll cut down on behavior. Yeah. And then I do see that it really does need to become a whole school approach because one of the things I've seen is that the children will maybe be like, for example, in a grade three class where they have this approach and they're able to move around and, you know, they have different seats and things like that. But then they go to the next classroom in grade four and it's not like that. It's, you know, totally the standard desk situation that yes. every time you need to stand up. Like, I see that that could be very jarring for kids where you're like, but I, I can't do what it was comfortable. It's all changed. And um, right. yeah, so I see where then yeah. it needs to lend itself to a school-wide approach, really. Well, and, you know, I've, I've said to teachers, you know, I, I, I've worked with, with quite a few teachers that were a little rigid and really weren't open to some new ways of thinking. But sometimes if I just, you know, say to them, you know, what is, what's your end result? What do you, what do you want to have happen here? Do you want him to sit in that chair for 45 minutes? Or do you want him to really dig deeper into the solar system? Which is it? Because right now, you know, you're, you're fighting the fight about the chair. <laughs> let him sit on the floor. If he can focus better on the floor, let him sit on the floor. If he needs to stand up. I mean, we, we can't, we have to get to a point where we're not judging children for being focused and attentive because they look at us. We, we, it's, it's such a different, a different world now where, you know, we just, we have to move away from the traditional school setting where all the desks are in a row and everyone is looking at the teacher and everybody is doing things exactly the same way. That's not how our kids are. It reminds me when I went to school that the big thing was to, and you make eye contact with the teacher and it was sort of like right. this pleasing thing that when the teacher came back in the room, everyone would kind of like jar themselves and sit up straight. And, and it's just not <laughs> really the way that the, the, the kids function, right? Like, it's, no, it's not, it's not, not how you learn. It's maybe how you're, you know, on, on attention, but it's not how, how you really learn. Right. Um, right. Yeah, for sure. So I think another thing that's really important you've mentioned is that parents play such a key role. And I can attest to this, you know, like I've mentioned, my son has an IEP. Um, I participate in, in, you know, meetings around that and um, really uh, make sure that parents um, or teachers can actually understand sort of um, some of his challenges and, and why they're a challenge. But I'm wondering what other role or what is the role that you see parents in terms of playing that supporting role or even advocating role for neurodiverse learners? So I think one of the best ways that parents can support is just really knowing your child and knowing the best way that your child learns and share that with teachers, even if it seems to be very outside of the box. 
it's possible that, you know, as a parent, you know, you know, you, you know, your, your child better than anyone. So if you can impart some wisdom and information to teachers to help them, that, I mean, that would be huge. And then also, you know, know what your rights are as a parent and then know what's available to your child. So what I've said to parents in the past is just because something is not available at your school does not mean it's something that your child doesn't need. So I think that we, we really have, when it comes to, you know, IEPs and figuring out what, what each child needs, we can't say, well, we don't do that here. We don't have that available for you here. Well, yes, you, you'll have to, because this is what my child needs. And so I think, you know, like you use the word advocate. I think that that's so important that parents are able to advocate for what's right for their children and I think the more parents can communicate the needs of their child. And sometimes, you know, when we when we talk about neurodiversity, parents are the ones that might wind up educating school staff and they might have to look at things a little bit differently. Um, the other thing I think it helps for parents to be involved in in groups, whether it's a group online or a group in your community that supports, you know, like minded parents that are open to, you know, new suggestions for their students that also have children that are neurodiverse. Um, I love the word neurodiverse because I think so many children and so many people fit into that category. We don't mm-hmm. all think the same. And so it's, you know, using that kind of terminology, it's time to really rethink the way that we're, we're providing education. And so parents, um, parents definitely have to get, get into the ring, so to speak, and, and share what's best for their kiddos. Yeah, no, I love that. And it's interesting. One of the things that during the pandemic, we had our children at home for various different periods and they were learning online. Um, And it was actually really good for me as a parent because I got to see firsthand how my son's learning style was and my daughter's as well, um, which is different. I mean, I've always kind of struggled with that. And like, I know what they're like at home. I know what they're (laughs) like when they're, you know, doing their homework, but what are they actually like, you know, for that, that full day um, as much as, as much as it can be similar with them online. And, and it really helped me to see like, Oh, this is where the struggle is. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's been one, um, you know, we'll say kind of good thing of of having had them at home during that time. So that's really um, good that, that you're suggesting parents really can be involved. And I like the idea of finding community as well, because chances are there's somebody out there that has went through a similar situation to you and maybe has a tool or a fix that worked for them. And um, you don't have to maybe start all over again. <laughs> right, right. And I mean, I, th- I feel like, you know, just as humans, sometimes it's n- nice to just hear, yeah, me, me too, or, mm-hmm. or I've been through that too. And let me share, you know, how I was able to help my child. I think that yeah. that's hugely beneficial. Um, and even from the emotional standpoint, I think it's beneficial too. Um, and I think, you know, going back to what you were saying about, you know, online learning, I think the, the pandemic really opened up a lot of doors and opened up a lot of people's eyes as to, you know, some things that just might be missing 
yeah. in the in the way that we're that we're working with kiddos because online learning is not the same as face to face. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Need different tools. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, so before we wrap up, I wondered, are there any additional tools or advice that you kind of want to mention to our listeners and, and leave them with? So um, I think as parents, make sure that you're as involved as possible. Um, ask questions. Know if your kids are struggling in a certain area. Ask to see data because everybody needs to be taking data. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Ask for specific information and find out, you know, where your kids' strengths are in school and where are the deficits and, and is there a creative way that you can work on some of these things at home that don't necessarily feel like homework. Um, and then, you know, for teachers, it's just so important to know that every child is different. And sometimes, you know, as kids move from grade to grade to grade, you know, formal, formulate your own opinion of a child before you go and ask the previous year's teacher. Um, learning styles change all the time. Our kiddos grow um, and their learning style might grow with them. And then, you know, just be open to having dialogue with, with colleagues. And I think um, one of the biggest challenges with that is that it's okay that you don't know everything. And we learn from each other all the time. Even as when I was a district level staff person, I learned from the teachers I worked with um, daily and it was great. And then the other piece of that too um, is if you're an administrator or a school leader, make sure that you have all your pieces in place, all your ducks in a row um, before you, you know, initiate, anything new, whether it's um, an inclusive community or, or anything else that might come down the pike. Um, and be sure that you can answer the how and why questions of what you want um, teachers and children to do. I think that's really important. Why are we doing this? And then how? How are we going to do it? Mm, yes, that's good advice. Um, you mentioned data. So, you know, a lot of what we get back as parents is kind of that report card is like, what other things are you thinking that we should be looking for? So for all children that have an IEP, there's data that's taken on their goals. So if there's data being taken, and there's not, um, there's no growth happening, then the IEP team really should come back together and either reinvestigate the goal or take a look at that specially designed instruction to see if that might need to be adjusted in order to make growth. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. <clears throat> great, great idea. So I'm sure listeners are interested in finding out more about you, DJ, and also Inclusiveology. Mm. Where can they do that? Uh, where's the best place to connect with you? So they can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Inclusiveology. I am also on LinkedIn um, as DJ Nicholson. And you can find me online at my website at www.inclusiveology.com. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I will be sure to link up to all of these places in the show notes and then people can click away and find you that way as well. I think this has been great information on, you know, what can be done at home, what can be done in the classroom, so that all of our students can be successful in the way that is best for them. 
Awesome. Sarah, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you. Do you love the Learning to Slay the Beast podcast? Well, first of all, thank you so much. Second of all, if you love the podcast and you want more and more to keep coming, I would love your support through Kofi.com. Kofi.com is a way that you can put a little money towards your favorite podcast. It can be as little as a few dollars, one time, bunch of times, whatever you feel that you can give. And it helps to cover all the costs that go associated with podcasting. So if you would like to support this podcast, please consider donating through Kofi.com. You can find the link in my Instagram feed under Linktree. It's at Sarah Lady Gluten, or you can visit Kofi, K-O- hyphen fi.com slash learning to slay the beasts. I appreciate your support, whether you can give or not. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much to DJ Nicholson for her time today on the podcast. I think it was really helpful to hear a little bit more about the school system, how it works, at least generally. I know it's not the same everywhere, but then also get into what the role of parents can really look like in supporting neurodiverse learners. I loved her focus on knowing your child, knowing your rights, knowing what's available, and really being involved when you are a neurodiverse parent. I think it's so important. I know there's so much to do in those cases, but the school experience can um, be such a big part of your child's life and, and it can really enhance um, when, when it's done right. So I think you're likely going to want to learn more about DJ and the work that she's doing with Inclusivology. So you can, as she said, find her at www.inclusivology.com. She's on Facebook and Instagram at Inclusivology. And she also mentioned being on LinkedIn at DJ Nicholson. So again, I appreciate you listening. I think this really does fit in with our New Year's focus. So I talked a lot in the last two weeks about wanting to dig into some of the really big things that are maybe hanging over our heads that we know we need to put work into. And honestly, if you're a parent and you've got a neurodiverse child that's attending school, this might be something that is hanging over your head. Or maybe you're an educator and it's something that you want to dig into um, learning a little bit more about and doing a little bit more with. And so I really hope that this conversation was helpful and that it'll help to nudge, nudge you along into those big things. Have a great week. Are you interested in having a published author speak in your classroom or at your community event? I'd be interested in speaking about my new novel, Pendulum by S.E. German, the writing process, mental health, Panda's Pans, podcasting, and more. Contact me at reallifeprojectco at gmail.com for both in-person and online bookings. Thank you for listening to the Learning to Slay the Beast podcast. Please keep in mind, this podcast is not intended to be medical or professional advice. If you'd like to hear more from me, you can follow me on social media, Instagram and TikTok at Sarah Lady Gluten or Facebook, Sarah underscore Gluten Free Lady. 
You can also visit my website, which includes author information, speaking information, and more info on the podcast at www.se-german.com. If you like the podcast, please feel free to review the podcast on your favorite platform and also subscribe because it means that it will show up for you every week on your favorite podcast platform. Also, we've just started to have the ability to support the podcast. You can find this link in my Instagram bio or visit Kofi, ko-fi.com slash learning to slay the beasts. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.